Okay. Well, if you are a guest, welcome. Uh, and if you're not, I guess welcome as well. Um, we're going to be continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to Matthew 5. And we'll be picking up uh, in verses 33 to 37. And we'll be talking about oaths, oaths today. All right. So Matthew 5, 33 says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your own head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Well, I have to say, a few weeks ago when I was reading through this, uh, just in preparation, a bunch of questions popped into my head. <laughs> Should we be making promises? Is a marriage an oath or a covenant? Are we supposed to swear on the Bible in court? Aren't promises and covenants sworn all over Scripture and by God? Is there a difference between covenants, vows, oaths? So before we dive in to Matthew 5 here, I think we need to figure out some terminology because I think it's going to be helpful for us lest the road ahead be filled with potholes <laughs> and other uh, raccoons darting out and things like that. <laughs> All right. So, covenants, vows, and oaths. Uh, in our day and age, covenants, vows, and oaths, we might mix some of the terminology. Um, one thing we know for sure is uh, a lot of them fall under the umbrella of promises. These are types of promises that we can make. And even in Scripture, there is a lot of overlap. And one thing they are is promises. But while they are related, there are some very, very key distinctions that we can pick out from Scripture here. So a covenant, a covenant. A covenant can be thought of as a relationship between two partners who are making a binding promise to each other. And they're both working towards a common goal. So it involves two people making promises to one another. It could be thought of as like a contract or a treaty. Um, and they're often accompanied by oaths, signs, or ceremonies. And covenants will, in them, in this big kind of contract, they'll often, you know, define obligations of both parties that are entering the covenant that people have to fulfill. But what makes them very different in the Bible is they, they aren't... Um, a contract in, in our kind of day and age can be thought of quite stuffy corporate type thing. But in the Bible, the covenants that we see are very, very relational and personal. 
I think the one that comes to our minds probably is marriage, I would imagine. Um, a husband and wife, they choose to enter a formal relationship, binding themselves to one another in a lifelong faithfulness and devotion. And then they work as partners to reach a common goal. Um, examples might be building a life together, raising children together, etc. And this type of pattern is pretty evident with a bunch of the covenants that we see God make with Adam and Noah and Abraham, Moses, and even the covenant that Jesus makes with his church. So that's a covenant. A vow, when we see this in Scripture, refers to a promise made by an individual to God, oftentimes with humans as witnesses. So a vow goes upwards. It's made to God. It's a promise made to God with oftentimes humans as witnesses. Vows in Scripture uh, often included like a negative side and a positive side, just meaning oftentimes the vow made to God was, hey, I will do these things and I will stay away from these things. One of the most popular ones that some of us might be uh, familiar with, maybe unbeknownst to us, would be the Nazarite vow. If you are familiar with a guy named Samson or Samuel in the Bible, these are guys who took Nazarite vows. And so they promised to stay away from grape products, cutting hair, uh, touching dead things. And that, that's the negative side. That's what they stayed away from and what they chose to do instead with their time. You know, not touching dead things. It's like, okay, I won't do that because I was going to do that a lot. <laughs> but what they chose then to do was devote their time and energies and resources to the temple and to bringing offerings to God. So that was the Nazarite vow. So vow, upwards, humans as witness. Now an oath, you can kind of think of that as the opposite there to a vow. An oath is made to someone with God as my witness, right? So how, are we seeing how this is kind of working now? So an oath is a solemn promise made by an individual to another individual or individuals in which God is called upon to act as witness and or judge. And this is often used in scripture to, you know, someone makes an oath when they want to strengthen and confirm the truthfulness of a statement that they're making. Um, and we also see this when they're trying to confirm someone's intention to fulfill an obligation. So, covenants, two parties making promises to one another. In scripture, it's often very relational. Vow, individual making a promise to God with humans oftentimes as witnesses. An oath, promise to another person with God as the witness. How are we doing? You with me? <laughs> Awesome. So why swear an oath? Why do we do this? We are using God's name in our speech because we know our reputation and our track records aren't good enough, are they? So to truly convince someone of our full ability and intention to do something, we would swear to God and use God as our witness. And this is what we see throughout Scripture. Now, there is a lawful oath and there is an unlawful oath. So what it looked like to, 
to have a lawful oath in Scripture. Um, let's take a look at Numbers 30, actually, here. Um, well, let, let's, let's, yeah, let's set this up here. But this is uh, in Scripture here. There are a number of laws and instructions on how to practice oaths and vows. But really the most important part of this is, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. So when someone is taking an oath, oftentimes you'll see verbal patterns throughout Scripture like, I swear to God or I swear by God. God is witness between you and me. Or someone will say, as the Lord lives, yada, yada, yada. Or they might say, may the Lord do to me if I do not, you know, do X, Y, and Z. So if you find those throughout the Bible, someone is taking an oath with someone else. And also, oaths were often accompanied by a physical gesture. So it's not a new thing. Does anyone recognize this? I solemnly swear, right? We see this in Scripture by raising one's right hand, or less commonly, but definitely more awkwardly, placing your hand under another's thigh. I'm really glad that is not <laughs> something we do in our cultural context. <laughs> but there is an unlawful oath. There's a way to do an oath um, incorrectly here. Number one, if you swear to do something that breaks God's commands to love him and love others, that is an unlawful oath. That is not okay in Scripture. And we see examples of this. David is a good example of this in 1 Samuel. Um, in 1 Samuel, he makes an oath to kill a man named Nabal. I think I'm getting that right. Probably getting that wrong, actually. Nabal. We'll call him Nabal. Um, a man who offends him. And David just... He's offended by this man, and he says, I vow, I, I swear that I will kill this man and every male in his household. And so he suits up 400 men, goes to Nabal, and thank God his wife comes out and pleads with David, Abigail. And David recognizes what he's done. And he rightly does not follow through with this oath. He recognizes that the oath he has taken was never good to begin with. And he thanks Abigail and he says, I thank you for saving me from the blood guilt that would have been upon me. Unfortunately, we have another example of Jephthah in Judges. He rashly makes this oath, you know, Lord... You know, I will, if you deliver this thing to me, I will um, sacrifice the first thing that comes to me when I come, come home. And the first thing that he sees when he comes home is his daughter. And this is an example in Scripture where he should not have fulfilled this oath. It's a sad reminder of the danger of making rash decisions, rash promises, and the foolishness of keeping a foolish oath. 
So, how is breaking an oath sinful? In Deuteronomy, it was only by Yahweh's name that Israel was to swear. We get this from, you know, Deuteronomy 6.13. It is Yahweh, it is the Lord, your God, you shall fear him, you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. So since that's the case, an oath sworn in God's name that is not followed through with would certainly be considered to be taking the Lord's name in vain. I don't know if you've ever considered that when you've read through that commandment. Maybe you've just thought, oh, if I say a swear word or do this. That's, this is really what this is talking about. It's using Yahweh's name flippantly in vain. So breaking an oath this way would certainly be breaking that commandment. You've dragged his name into your conversation to bolster your truthfulness, and then you've not held yourself to a standard of truthfulness and thereby besmirched, dirtied, dishonored, desecrated his name with your actions. This is what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. So, bid on oaths, bid on vows, bid on covenant. Now we arrive in the scene. Matthew 5. Verse 33 says, Again you have heard that it was said of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So we've read lots about people making these oaths and promises. And these were pleasing to God if they were kept. God even entered into promises with us, if you remember. But when we arrive on the scene here, Jewish practices had started undercutting this practice of oath-taking. R.C. Sproul puts it this way here. To keep people from breaking the law's rules regarding our promises, Jewish teachers and leaders invented a system by which they could determine whether a vow had to be kept Extra biblical literature indicates that many rabbis, that's a Jewish teacher, many rabbis did not consider it a sin to break a vow if it was not made explicitly in the name of God. Oaths made in the name of heaven or even the gold of the temple were not regarded as ultimately binding. As we might expect from sinners, this led to people making oaths by persons or objects other than God to give them an out in case they did not keep their word. It's a total abuse of the system. We've already read in Deuteronomy that it was only by God's name that they were supposed to be swearing by. Some other scholars have noted that some Jews would, you know, partially say God's name or say something that kind of sounded like God's name. Funny enough, we do that in our culture too, don't we? I don't know if I want to say some of the words that you I was thinking about that. I probably shouldn't, but I think you can maybe let your imagination go. And this was all in an attempt to not have a truly binding oath. So let's continue reading. Uh, verse 34 to 37 says, But I say unto you, I say to you, 
Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So you see that Jesus is going right after these very specific practices that we read about from the rabbis. In the first three examples, where Jesus is saying, um, either by heaven, either by earth, either by Jerusalem. In these first three examples, Jesus is actually pointing out that they have not circumnavigated sin by not using the Lord's name. And he points this out. He says, hey, if you're swearing by heaven, you've sworn by God's throne, thereby swearing by God. Hey, if you're swearing by earth and you think you've got away from this, well, that's God's footstool. You're swearing by God. And swearing by Jerusalem, you're swearing by God's city and thereby sworn by God. They're clever loopholes are exposed to not be loopholes at all. And Jesus is saying that God's name has been afraid, uh, profaned in all three of these particular examples, actually. Because these things belong directly to God. But in the last example, what's that about? Swearing on someone's head and turning hair white and black. Well, here, Jesus' issue lies in the object that's being sworn by. The object being sworn by or the false god, the people or the false god that they're swearing by, they hold no power to judge and take the oath taker to account. James 4, 13 to 16. This came to mind when I was reading through this. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town. We'll spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is now, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So here, Jesus' issue is to pretend as if any other being has the ability to even be in control of what tomorrow brings and make sure something comes to pass and hold someone accountable. It's pure arrogance. And this is what Jesus takes issue with. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name alone you shall swear. And so Matthew 5, 37, the last verse here, is let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Yeah, it certainly comes from arrogance, as the passage in James just said. So as a simple Yes or no? Is it a lower calling that Jesus is calling us to? Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not. It's a higher calling. Jesus is, once again, bringing them back to the heartbeat of the law here. 
He's saying, hey, all speech that you utter should be spoken as if it was an oath. It's not an oath, but every word from our mouth we should intend to keep and should be careful with our words. And many commentators on this passage, many scholars who have looked into this, new and old, seem to realize the same thing here. They all kind of come to a similar conclusion. And it's that, hey, an honest person has no need for an oath. And a dishonest person, their oath can't be trusted anyways. So what's the point of an oath? (laughs) And so it leads to a question. Is this passage forbidding all oaths or just the abuse of oaths? And I went into the weeds with this one. Uh, I'll tell you that. The church isn't settled on this particular debate. And I want to say that that's okay. This is a secondary or tertiary issue. Um, And it does not mean that it's not important. Please hear me say that. It just means that this is not an issue that would compromise our salvation. It's not an issue that should divide us. So why does this even matter? When we get to a passage like this and when we're thinking about, well, does it really matter? I, I don't know if I care about knowing whether I should take an oath or not. Well, in your life, you might be called to say an oath one day. If you're getting into the medical field, the Hippocratic Oath, you might have to take one day. There's civil oaths for government workers, oath of office for law keepers, an oath of testimony if you're called to court. So do we stay away from jobs that make us swear oaths? Or when asked to take an oath, do we refuse or change the wording of what we say? This is why it matters. This is why pleading ignorance can't simply just be something that we do when we come to a a scripture. So the viewpoints on this, I'm going to walk them through here. On one side, there are those that say, hey, guys, this is pretty clear. It says, do not take an oath at all. It's an open and shut case. And there are a few denominations that have really taken this and and run with it. Um, The Mennonites, Anabaptists, the Amish, they hold to this view, certainly with nuances, certainly with nuances. Um, And so do many respected theologians. C.H. Spurgeon is one of them. Uh, John Piper is another one. Um, And and there are many more. John Piper actually... um, he was, he was talking about, um, he was asked a question about someone wondering if they should swear on the Bible. And here was his response. I just thought it was deep. I loved it. <laughs> so I'm going to share it with you. He said, the burden of Jesus is that his people be so utterly and deeply and simply committed to tell the truth that they don't need buttresses to hold up their words like the fear of desecrating a sacred object like the Bible. And I love that. And if you don't know what buttresses are, they're those big structures that hold up a building. (laughs) They're angled support. Our words should be able to to stand on their own. 
because we are people that fear the Lord just out of basic principle of being Christians. So, the other side of things. They would argue that, hey, even a casual glance at Jesus' teaching suggests that Jesus came to reinforce and expand the moral law, not to repeal it. Jesus expanded teaching on murder, adultery, divorce, what we were just talking about. He's not doing away with those things. He's adding on to them. He's adding, uh, you know, something deeper, a higher calling to those things. He's not, he's not washing them away. So why would we think otherwise? that he's not doing that here also. In the New Testament, we see also that Jesus himself uttered an oath in response to a high priest. He was answering under oath. The Apostle Paul used oaths multiple times in the New Testament. God himself uses oaths. An angel swears an oath in Revelation. And they would contend that Jesus' statement in Matthew 5, 17 to 19, which I preached a few weeks ago, said that Jesus did not come to abolish any part of the law. And so some denominations that would hold and affirm this position would be like Baptists or Presbyterians, Anglicans. There's you know, more on both sides, I'm sure. These aren't complete lists. Um, and so do many respected theologians. R.C. Sproul, John Christostom, early church fathers, So, after hearing this, you might not know what to think. <laughs> and I've only been studying this for a few weeks, and I have to say, I'm not sure I would even be comfortable on one side quite yet, let alone telling you guys how to convict yourselves on this particular issue. So then, what can we know for absolute certain? What we can we know for absolute certain? Number one, we need to be so careful with our words. Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before the Lord, before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. <laughs> I could learn a thing or two about that. <laughs> As for all of us, chances are you are in a contract of some kind right now as we speak. A covenant type maybe, maybe even under an oath, right? Your job, you have a contract to your employer. A marriage, that's a covenant. So take that promise to your employer, your business partner, your country, your office, your spouse. Take it seriously. Don't be like the Pharisees and take shortcuts where we have commitments. If you have an employer, don't be lazy at your job. 
Don't slacken standards when you have a deal with someone. Don't make a sinful promise. Don't give 50% effort in your marriage because your spouse gives 50% effort. You live for who? You live for God. Honor Him in all of your promises, in all of your commitments. Hold your yes and no to a high standard as your worship to God. Yes means yes, no means no. And friends, don't pass judgment on one another for this. I appeal to Romans 14 here. Now, we're not going to read it. It's a large passage. But if you are convicted about taking oaths and someone else is convicted to never take an oath, please don't pass judgment on one another. Talk about it. It's good to talk about things of Scripture Debate it even a little, but at the end of the day, this is not something to divide over, to harbor anger over. If your conscience allows you to swear an oath to God, do it to the glory of God and be careful. If we make vows and promises, you know, every time we make a, a statement to another person, well, then we might be too flippant in our use of God's name, and thus we actually might be guilty of taking the Lord's name in vain. We can't just be swearing things willy-nilly. Furthermore, the more oaths and vows and things that we make, <laughs> we're just bringing more judgment on our head because the more vows we make, the more oaths we make, the greater the chance it is that we will break them in our sinfulness and our imperfection. And if your conscience doesn't allow you to swear an oath, then don't become that kid on the playground. Oh, we didn't pinky swear. My fingers were crossed. <laughs> Please hold your yeses and your noes to an oath-like standard. You know, as humans, we hear so many lies that I think we just learn to doubt out of the gate. But can I just remind us, church, God makes good on His promises. I was reminded of the time where God swears by Himself when he enters into promises by us. He tells Abraham, by myself I have sworn, I will surely bless you. And why might God do this? Why might God do this? One thing I haven't told you about oaths yet is that they are very tied together with a curse. If you think about it, an oath is a self-curse of sorts, right? If I don't do this, then cursed be me. Then this bad thing befall me. The Lord judge me for this. And this was quite understood in Second Temple times, in, in Old Testament times. So essential was the curse that an oath might actually be cited in just the form of a curse. 
right? The Israelites had sworn one time, cursed be he who provides a wife for the Benjamites. Your father adjured the army, cursed be the man who eats bread today. That's how synonymous these things were. They were very connected. And in God's covenant with Abraham, to bless him and make his descendants more numerous than the stars. The sign and ceremony that was involved in that was to walk between animals that had been cut in half. And it was a declaration that if I do not keep my promise, may I be torn in two like these animals that I walk through. An extremely serious sign. And you know the crazy part about it is that God put Abraham to sleep and God alone walked through those animals. And as we read through the Old Testament, we could never uphold our end of the promises that were made that day to God on Mount Sinai all throughout Scripture. We could never, ever uphold our end of the covenant with God. But he always did. He always did. And a few centuries later, Jesus took on the curse that should have been put on us for breaking our side of the covenant. Do you realize that? Galatians 3, 13 to 14 says this beautifully. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged, is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. God does not fail. And he even upholds our end of the promise for us. And that's what the cross represents. He took that punishment that should have been ours from breaking our promise with God. So in closing, Jesus himself is the truth and the life. He delivers on his promises. And we are image bearers of God. Galatians says that we are heirs to inherit eternal life according to the promise of Jesus. And therefore, we should share this promise with everyone. This is what it means to proclaim the gospel. That's what we're doing. And this is the gospel. Gospel is God Himself, the King of heaven and earth, has opened wide the invitation to be adopted as His sons and daughters. And if we put our faith in Him, which is believing loyalty, if we put our trust in Him and give Him all of our life, then those adoption papers, they're signed and sealed. And the signature and the seal he gives is not a, it's not a form that he gives to us. It's not his, his, his word. He, he goes above and beyond that. 
His seal and signature is a person. It's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works in us and transforms us. While Jesus goes to the Father's house to prepare a place for us. And when he returns, all who are sealed with the Spirit will be welcomed in to the new heavens and the new earth, while everyone else who rejected his invitation will be cast out into darkness forever. Do you know where you're going? Those of us, those of us with faith in Christ we eagerly await our adoption. Are you sure that when you see God face to face, that it will be the best moment ever? <laughs> or will it be the worst moment of your existence, leading to an absolute horror of pain and darkness? Hell. My friends, my family, my church, the promise of God is that if you trust him, if you give him your full loyalty, he will wash you clean and cover you in his righteousness. And if you have given your full loyalty to Yahweh, if you haven't given your full loyalty to Yahweh, I invite you to. Please, come talk to me afterwards. This is not something to wait on. This is something to do now. He is the only way to be saved into a beautiful eternal hope and the only way to be saved from being convicted of all of our sins and cast into hell eternally. If you are going to be sure of anything in this life, make sure it's about this promise. Can we stand together? I'm just going to lead us in. I'm just going to pray. God, you are the best promise keeper. You have been faithful and trustworthy throughout time even when we, your people, have not been. God, please allow us to be so utterly devoted to you that we can't help but speak truth because we hold you in such high esteem and because we love our neighbors rightly. God, please shape us into people who are brokenhearted by any lies that have crossed our lips or lazy intentions that we have let slip. 1 Corinthians says that all the promises of God find their yes in him. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So trusting that you will continue in your promises, Lord God. We give you the glory today, Father, as all God's people together say, 
Amen.